Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 610th edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Daniel Feuerstein. I'll give you American perspective of our clubs, leagues, players, national team, and other fabulous moments to get your daily reading from me and other writers over at Beyond the 90 at beyondthe90.substack.com, as well locally on the New York Red Bulls at Red Bull News Network. But as always, this show is dedicated to the American game. Chat room is open. Come on in. Discuss amongst yourselves if you like. If you have a question uh, within yourselves, go ahead. Chat room is open. And if you like to talk to me, I'll try to answer your questions to the best of my abilities. This is game two in the first round of the 2023 MLS Cup playoffs. The majority of the of this round is done. We only have three games left as we have the Sounders hosting FC Dallas on Friday. We also have on Saturday, the 11th, Houston hosting Real Salt Lake. And on Sunday, November the 12th, Columbus Crew hosting Atlanta United. So it should be a fun time when we get ready for those games. And we'll have that show ready for you next week. I'll tell you when at the end of this episode. But listen, without a doubt, the Major League Soccer Cup playoffs are always going to be exciting. They're always going to be fun. We're always going to get hard-fought matches no matter who is playing in it, no matter who qualified for it. They will always be, always be fun and exciting, and we will always enjoy what we see in front of us, especially whether you're going to watch your, those select matches either through the MLS season pass on Apple TV or when Fox Sports is going to be showing those games either on Fox Sports 1 or Fox National or the Fox Deportes channels. But, unfortunately, I'm still upset and I'm still angry. We have to go to a best two out of three rounds in this opening round and then go to a single match for the rest of the playoffs. I mean, it's just ridiculous and it's just terrible and I, I just find it idiotic. Not because, oh, someone at HQ is making up things as they go along. No. The fixture congestion that Major League Soccer is intentionally putting in because they're trying to, of course, make more money, which I understand. But honestly, goal aggregate series would have been the best way to go. And I think that's where they should have gone. Two games, total goals in both games. 
if you want to bring back the away goals rule, fine. If you don't want to bring it back, that was fine too. Because honestly, that is the proper way to settle a playoff series or at least a series in these competitions like what they're going to be doing for the CONCACAF Champions Cup. At the same time, what you've watched in the knockout stages of the UEFA Champions League and the Copa Libertadores. I just think Major League Soccer reinventing the wheel too many times is going to make everything fall apart in front of their eyes. And it's just not good. And it's not right. And all we want is consistency with the postseason. And that's why I wrote what I wrote on Beyond the 90 about getting rid of the playoffs. Because I feel like there's no consistency with these playoffs and how they are being set up. I was happy with the one and dones, to be honest with you. When Major League Soccer decided, because of the complaints about the goal aggregate with the away goals rule being involved, it, like, it makes no sense. It makes the supporter shield devalued. Whoever wins it, you know, all the arguments against it. Then they decided to go the one match and done. Now all of a sudden they go to Apple and then all of a sudden this has to happen. I'm sorry. I, I, I just feel like it's just not the proper way to do these playoffs, to continue to tinker with something that wasn't broken. And that's, like I said, that's why I wrote what I wrote in Beyond the 90. It's time to basically just to say this, and, and I think this is what they got to do. They have to get rid of the playoffs now and make the regular season more meaningful by playing. When San Diego FC comes into play, you play 28 games within your own conference then you play 14 games out of the 15 teams in the other conference. Seven of them will be at the home at the home stadium, and the other seven will be on the road. And the 15th team in the other conference, you don't play them, but that can be rotated every single season. So when San Diego comes in, the Red Bulls might not play St. Louis. Cincinnati, FC Cincinnati may not play Colorado. Uh, DC United may not play LAFC. And even though that will be over 40 games in the regular season, I think that would work. And also, you get rid of League's Cup, and then you worry about those teams that are going to be playing in the CONCACAF Champions Cup, and now... Of course, the U.S. Open Cup games. I just feel it's a better way, a safer way, and you care about the health of the players. Because the more you add on to the calendar during the season, the more difficult it's going to get. And even though they're going to have to expand the roster sizes for each, uh, for each club and possibly also for 
uh, the game day roster. Let's be honest with ourselves here. I don't want to see our league being devalued on quality. It's not just the quantity of games that you want to play. It's the quality that they get to be played in. And if the players are going to tire with so much fixture congestion, well then, what good does that do? What good does that do for everyone involved in Major League Soccer? The players are complaining. The coaches are starting to complain. Everyone is getting exhausted and tired. Steve Trelundolo, he's the first one to speak out, the first head coach to speak out about this whole situation. All it is right now is fixture congestion at its worst. And that's what I've been worried about. Not just making League's Cup into a legal tournament, but adding another, adding another match or two, adding another match or two to further make the season extend. It's not any. It's no longer about, you know, switching to a summer to spring calendar, and it's also not talking about having two separate seasons like what Mexico does all the way down to South America. No, it's not about that. In reality, you know what it's about? It's about making sense, making sense of the Major League Soccer calendar and showing respect to the international calendar. That's what it's all about. That's what it's truly all about. And if we are not going to show the respect of the international calendar and everything else involving MLS domestically and internationally, well, then I don't know what to tell you guys. This is by far a great year of clubs making the playoffs, fighting tooth and nail to get to that final spot. And you know what? It's been great so far, but I'm I'm getting worried that it's going to be too much. And if it goes too much too far, then where are we going to be as a league down the road in the future? I don't know how much longer Don Garber will be commissioner of Major League Soccer. He could be there for a very, very long time and never leave. But... Who knows? Maybe he'll become president of the, of the, the U.S. Soccer Federation. Maybe he'll decide to become president of CONCACAF. I don't know what's in his plans. But the only thing is this, and, and when, I, when, when I try to talk about Commissioner Don Garber, let me say this right now. Since he's taken over at the end of the 1999 Major League Soccer season, He has done a fabulous job of keeping this league afloat 
bringing in new teams, more revenue. You know, he has done a brilliant job of keeping the, the league afloat and just making it better and stronger each and every year. Okay? Without a doubt, he deserves, he deserves all the plaudits of keeping MLS going. But once again, Don, I would like for you just to listen. I'm, I'm not accusing, I'm not going against you. I recognize what you've done for this league. And trust me, I, I'm grateful that you've found ways to keep this league going when you lost investors for the clubs and you held on through, uh, through Phil Anschutz, Lamar Hunt, Robert Kraft, and then you brought, you brought in new teams, and then Lamar Hunt was able to sell off some of these clubs. Phil Anschutz was able to sell off the majority of those clubs. Robert Kraft stayed with the game, and I'm grateful for that. And now we've got more people involved in American soccer. But still, though, these playoffs, it's just really disheartening. we got to go to a two, win two out of three games just to advance to the next round where they're all one and dones. I'm sorry. I, I think it's gone too far. And like I said, if MLS wants to still have a playoff at the end of the regular season, then have the conference winners face each other for the MLS Cup championship. Whoever wins Supporter Shield will take on the winner of the other conference who did not win the Supporter Shield and just have a one-game final, have a, a, a goal aggregate final. But once again, Don, you've done a great job. Without a doubt, you've done a great job. But please, let's make some sense of the playoffs. Just have them go aggregate or go back to one and done from start to finish. That's all we're asking. That's all I'm asking. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to review the, game, the second game of the first round of the 2023 MLS Cup playoffs. Joining me right now from Philadelphia Soccer Now, it is the one and only Greg Oldfield. As the Union head up to Gillette, defeated 10 men New England Revolution by a final of one goal to nil. Greg, big match, big win. You take care of the Revolution, the Union does. And now they are in the driver's seat on their end of the bracket of the Eastern Conference. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Daniel. Yeah, it was a it was a big win. It was um, the road wins have been few and far between this year. They, um, you know, they they haven't looked the same on the road as they have at home. So it was definitely a a big win for them. A little shorthanded, and um, you know they took care of what they needed to take care of in advance. Absolutely. You know, some great plays, not just offensively but defensively for the Union. Uh, Mbizo. Uh, you know, that was a big block 
that he made on that big shot in the 16th minute. I mean, I think that was from Andrew Farrell. And my God, I mean, look, I I don't know if I've said this to you before, but I I always feel Andre Blake is the best goalkeeper in the league. Um, His positioning is absolutely fantastic. I always thought he was going to stop every shot, but uh, Mbazo really came up big in the 16th minute on that one. Yeah, that was um, a a strong attack from New England, and, and he definitely got back there in time and was able to make a key block. And, you know, New England, they, they, they definitely put a little pressure on the Union in the beginning, and they had their chances, but the Union still did a, a pretty good job of controlling the box, which, you know, is one of their strengths. And obviously Andre make, Blake makes a, a massive save, even though it was offside, but, you know, he shows what he can do, which is in, in, in many ways he can kind of take the soul out of a team when he makes a play like that. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely he can, and I got to tell you, once again, like I said, my favorite goalkeeper, like I said, I think he does very well in net for Philadelphia. Um, Harriel, in the 27th minute, I thought he scored, but he nails the far post and out. That looked like advantage Philadelphia right there. Yeah, they really were successful on their, their free kicks. I mean, all all night they were they were dangerous on their free kicks and corners, and, you know, it was uh, just a sitter, a sitter that he smashed off the post, and it's a it's a shame that he missed it. But I mean, he he got all of it, and um, you know, Union scoring first is always going to give them a major advantage, you know, to win. So that would have been, you know, they would have scored that first goal. It, it would have it would have carried a long way in that game before the red card. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely, very true there, very true there. Um, and then, of course, the big moment that came in this match for the Union as Mark Anthony Kay. Now, look, I think we can be fair a little bit to Mark Anthony Kay here, and I'm not condoning what he did, obviously, because I do believe it was a red card. But, you know, he's put himself in a tough position. <laughs> Excuse me. Put himself in a tough position to uh, – Try to land that left foot, but look, he stomped on Gazdog. Can't forgive him for that. That had to be a red card. Yeah, it was it was a weird play, you know. In in real time, it didn't look as bad as what it looked like on the replay, and I think that's that's probably why Drew Fisher didn't give a red card initially. But anytime you try to step over somebody, you know, you're you're kind of inviting the player to uh, embellish a little bit. And Gazdag definitely he had his he played his part. He was able to sell it a little bit too, but you know, once you have the contact, it's, it's um, you know, even in slow motion when you see the contact, it it looks a lot worse than maybe it was in in full speed. I mean, definitely a red card, but not as convincing maybe in full speed as it was in the replay. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you there. Uh, definitely agree with you there. Uh, but once again, Mark Anthony K put himself in that position. And it was a uh, red card after VAR. And then, of course, <laughs> excuse me, Gustavo Bo. Big rip and another big save by Andre Blake to uh, prevent that ball from going to the back of the net. Uh, it looks like Bo might be leaving New England, but still, though, uh, that was a hell of a shot. And I thought that might have gone and beat Blake, but he makes a big save right there. Yeah, New England definitely – you know, they recognized that they had to they had to press a little bit. And, you know, it's funny. We talk a lot about the union playing up a man. And sometimes when they play up a man, they almost look like they're playing down a man. And they kind of invite 
these attacks. And, you know, fortunately, they were able to, to kind of hold off some of those chances. But they definitely played better when they were playing 11v11 than they did when they were playing up a man. Yep, exactly. I agree with you there. But, of course, the big moment came, 78th minute, the free kick goal for the Union. Donovan converts it. I don't. I mean, I don't know. It, that was a big, big scrum in the middle. I don't know if Donovan did make a touch on it. I guess just barely nicked it, and he goes right inside the far post, beats the keeper, and the Union have the one nil lead right there. Yeah, it was. Um, I love that free kick. Anytime you have that angle on the side, I think that in swinger in on target, it forces the keeper to either play the miss or play the touch, and it's such a difficult ball. For any keeper to defend and I thought the you know the ball that McGlynn played was excellent Donovan you know getting on the end of it whether he got a shoelace a, a toe or you know it, it was it was kind of hard to tell like I thought maybe the defender touched as well but even if even if nobody touched you know just the slightest touch um it's so difficult for the keeper to to do anything with that kind of a ball so I just thought the setup was perfect the ball was perfect uh just a great execution on a, on a free kick, which Jim Curtin said after the game, you know, it's something they focus on in these tight games, you know, the free kicks, those corner moments, they're, they're the moments that are going to decide a big game, a close game. And, you know, luckily they were able to execute it. Absolutely. And then uh, once again, Andre Blake, one more big stop in the 70, uh, actually we already talked about that, but anyway, um, Union, once again, just frustrating the revolution. They were down a man, New England. took Philadelphia basically took the advantage, and you're on your way to the next round, which it looks like you'll be uh, on the road against FC Cincinnati. Now, before we even get to that game, and I know it's going to be a while before that game gets played, what, what did you make of this match as a whole for the Union? Did you feel this was basically typical Philadelphia Union, or do you think the revolution really gave them a challenge? Um, I liked the matchup from the beginning. I thought that they handled New England pretty well. You know, with the exception of the, the decision day game, I thought they've handled New England pretty well. I think they match up well against them. Um, having 10 days off, I believe, works in the Union's favor because they were they were kind of limping into the postseason. They played a lot of games. I think 10 days got, gave them a chance to recover a little bit more. They looked fresh. Um, they looked a little bit like themselves. I don't think they've they really look like themselves or the way they they've looked in the beginning of this season or even last season, but they at least, they, they had an energy about them. They had a presence about them, which, you know, we're used to seeing when the union play at the top of their game. So I, I, I like the matchup, you know, they, again, the, the road wins are few and far between for them. So for them to go on the road, a little shorthanded, their youngsters stepped up and for them to get a result, I think was, was pretty big for them moving forward. Now, Obviously, they were out uh, without Jacob Glesnes with the sports hernia injury. Uh, did you think the back line looked a little haphazard, or it was just basically, you know, with him or without him, it was just, you know, every every other match normal as heck? I thought they I thought they did a great job patrolling the middle. I think again, Damian Lowe brings a little bit more of that physical presence that that maybe Glesnes doesn't. So he's kind of a, a different different mold of a center back. But I think the fact that him and Jack Elliott have played together for so long, 
And, you know, even Harriel's got a lot of minutes and, and Beiser's got a lot of minutes. It's still a pretty solid back four that, you know, they've, they've gotten a lot of minutes together. And if you throw in Martinez there as well in front of them, it's just an experienced, you know, back five that, they, they, you know, I think they've had enough minutes now this year that they, they kind of understand each other and, and, and they, and they look like that. They really did. They really, they really bent, but they didn't break. And that's, you know, kind of a union philosophy that they're able to maintain without Gillespie's in there. Now, Kai Wagner, of course, I will say this, and, and this is what I said on my show last night uh, as well. I'm glad he stepped up and admitted what he did was wrong with the whole Bobby Wood situation. Obviously, I think you know as well as I do, he's a good person. Obviously, he was frustrated against the revolution. Players took it out and probably frustrated playing against Bobby, and he he knew what he said was wrong, and he just basically admitted that he was wrong and that probably that's why he got the three games because if he didn't admit to it, he probably would have gotten more than just three being suspended. So I know it's probably going to be big time against Cincinnati in the next game. But at this moment, I just think Kai Wagner is lucky enough. He got three and not the six that uh, Von Zier got what he did uh, earlier in the year. Yeah, it, it, it's, fortunate for him but it's also odd in many ways you know you're trying to I understand you know the league's trying to put a game amount on specific offenses but this is kind of an offense that goes a little bit above and beyond what's what's a typical offense you know now you're now you're going to put a number of games on on racial abuse it just seems odd that it's three games and that he could end up being back uh in the in the MLS cup you know which is um it's strange to me that would be an odd scenario that he still gets to be able to play and finish the season um, after what happened. You know, I mean, it, 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 like you said, it's great that he admitted it. It's great that he stepped up and, you know, cooperated with the investigation and all that. But, you know, it's really something that doesn't have a place in our game. And, you know, three games to me seems a, a, a little light. And But now moving forward, you're kind of sending the message that, you know, some kind of racial abuse only gets you three games. And that's, uh, I don't really know how that looks on the league when you can justify that. And I agree with you there. I think there has to be a better, I think that both, I think the league and the players union need to come together and have stricter penalties when it comes to situations like this. So I absolutely agree with you there. Huh, excuse me, but once again, the Union advance uh, in both games, 3-1, 1-0. What's your expectations against Cincinnati? I think this is going to be a great game. You know, they, they match up well. It, it could be really boring, but I don't think it'll be really boring. I think it'll resemble a little bit more what their 2-2 draw looked like um, a little bit ago. They, um, defensively, they're going, to, they're going to try to cancel each other out, but but you know they both teams have the offensive players that can that can create and can, and can score. So I I see it being a really tight game, but I also see it being a really exciting game. You know I think Cincinnati have obviously had the better year. They're gonna they're gonna be the favorites, but the Union they can I, they can win this game. You know I'm not I'm not sold that they will, but they can. And I think having a long layoff again benefits them, even though you know they have some players leaving internationally, but. I just think having more rest for them is is going to be an advantage. I agree with you there. 
<coughs> excuse me, and we will see what happens um, when we come back from your national break. So it should be fun and exciting to, to uh, take a look. But oh, excuse me, Greg, one second, please. Yep. Ah, I don't know what's going on. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for joining us tonight, and I uh, hope to talk to you again uh, when we get back from your national break. You have a fun night, and take care. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, and have a good night. Greg thank Oldfeld. You. Thank you, Greg Oldfeld from Philadelphia Soccer Now, as uh, once again the Philadelphia Union advancing to the next round after defeating the New England Revolution in two consecutive games. My next guests, who uh, unfortunately not able to come on live, just did a recording with them. My first guest, from the heart of LAFC, Araceli Villanueva, as we review the LAFC victories over the Vancouver Whitecaps. Welcome back to the American Soccer Show as we continue on here to review the second game in the first round of the 2023 MLS Cup playoffs. Joining me right now from the heart of LAFC, it is the one, the only, the fabulous Araceli Villanueva joining me tonight. Araceli, thank you for your time and welcome back. Thank you for having me on. I'm definitely excited to talk about LAFC and I'll, I'll admit, I'm still kind of recovering a little from watching my hometown knock out St. Louis this past weekend. Well, I got to tell you, that was an amazing run that St. Uh, St. Louis had in the regular season. But, you know, I, I kind of felt Kansas City was going to get the upper hand anyway because, you know, look, no offense to St. Louis City, but, I, I mean, this is their first year in MLS, and having the year they had in the regular season was tremendous, but I didn't think they were going to make it past the first round. I thought they were going to, you know, fall out. But, look, nothing against them. Credit to them for having a great regular season, and they get a taste of uh, the playoffs, and uh, it'll be a learning tool for them. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, all credit to St. Louis. If you look at the record from this past season, they've not only shattered the record at certain moments, but just having a very successful first run, uh, considering other um, newer teams that have joined the league in the past years. Uh, again, you know, all credit to them, but at the same time, when it comes to my hometown, you know, it, I have to be a little biased, but... <laughs> no, absolutely. Why not? Well, let's go ahead and go into this match. Well, obviously... You blew out. They blew out Vancouver in the first game, five goals to two, and once again, Bawanga, just a man on fire. It's just amazing what he's done here, um, you know, in his MLS career this season, and now in the playoffs, it's just been tremendous. Oh, there's no doubt that Bawanga was definitely going to win the Golden Boot this year, which we all saw that he did, and. He even showed that in the first round of why he deserved that award, scoring the brace in the first game and then uh, converting the penalty in the second game. It's it's like how we said this whole season when it's come to even other competitions, that when it comes to Bawanga, he has that dangerous uh, left foot that every defender kind of fears in a sense. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, he converts that penalty in the second game in the 24th minute. Of course, that foul did happen inside the area. Um, two Vancouver players taking out 
uh, the attacker and uh, referee calls for the penalty. I, I know there are those that are saying that it didn't look like a penalty because the ball got kicked away first, but, you know, hindsight 2020, like, you know, VR probably did check it, and they called it a penalty, so there's, what are you going to do? And Vancouver's already down 1-0, and LAFC right now, uh, foot on the gas. Mm-hmm. I think uh, when it comes to the call of the penalty, it, it was the right call because if you look at the second game as a whole, Vancouver seemed to have the upper hand, especially looking at the stats. They dominated possession. They had more shots overall. So it really was one of those matches where it felt like history was going to repeat itself because LEFC does have a very tricky history and in Vancouver. But, again, when it comes to the foul and the penalty, I believe it was the right call. And, you know, let's be honest with ourselves, too. I mean, LEFC, Vancouver, no love lost between these two sides. You know, it went all the way back to the CONCACAF Champions League. Now it goes into, of course, not just the regular season, but now the MLS Cup playoffs. I mean, what, six times you had to face Vancouver this year? That's a lot. Oh, it's it's ridiculous to a point of how many times you can face one team. But I guess the silver lining, if any, is you do have that familiarity with them and their roster and kind of their formation. I mean, it's not... It's not to say that they change up their formation on a consistent basis, but it's almost the idea of you're facing them so many times, you have that practice, you have that idea, especially with playing on turf. So LAFC, they knew their opponent well going into playoffs. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, not much after that, of course, uh, some decent moments, obviously, uh, Timothy Tillman had two big opportunities to make it 2-0, but Vancouver makes some big saves, and then you get to the second half, it becomes the Maxime Cropot show. And, you know, it's great to see Maxime Cropot back out on the pitch, back in his net, defending after the broken leg he suffered at the MLS Cup final last year against Philadelphia Union. And, you know, how great was he making those four big saves to keep it at 1-0. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful to see Max back in goal after, um, as you said, after watching him suffer that injury in MLS Cup last year. And I believe he sat out for almost nine months, coming back in the summer, playing for LEFC's secondary team, LEFC 2, for a while as he continued to rehab. And now to see him back in goal, back in the spotlight, per se, making the save, it's just it's just great to watch Max and his road to recovery and see him go back to where we know him to be. No, absolutely. And I think in the 85th minute, that was his best save of the night, uh, that two-handed leaping save just to, you know, it looked like it was going to go top shelf. He finds a way to get his hands up, parries it over the crossbar, and, you know, Crepo back on his feet again, and hopefully not just for LAFC, but for Canada, he'll be able to get them right into that ship as well internationally. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that save in itself, it, it was old-school match in a sense. So, so to watch him 
make those saves, and keep LAFC in the running to avoid a game three was absolutely fantastic, not only for the club, but for the fans as well. And to even see the announcement, I believe it was yesterday that we saw that he made his return back to the um, can, uh, the international roster. So, uh, again, just to watch that his road from recovery to being back in the goal, now he gets to be back in the international spotlight. Uh, again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. It, it's just absolutely amazing. I mean, he's a great player both on and off the pitch. So to watch him achieve these again, is I couldn't be more proud. No, absolutely, and it's great to see him uh, get back to international football as well. Now, obviously, the strangest of things have happened this match, and, you know, at, at the time it did give LAFC that 2-0 lead, but you saw it, we all saw it, Tim Ford, the referee of uh, in this second game in the first round between Vancouver and LAFC, obviously did not mean for that to happen to pick off the Vancouver attacker during that corner that LAFC defended very well, but he did unfortunately bump them down, and it was off to the races, and LAFC Boanga once again, he did score at the time to make it 2-0, but as always, VAR had to intervene to say uh, you're going to have to wipe out that goal because, you know, Tim, you, you put yourself in that position. Have you ever seen anything crazy like that before in the game? I don't think I've ever seen anything crazy to that level, but I know that when it does come to VAR, it, it's always going to be controversial, whether it's the right call or not. For that call in particular, I... I kind of want a second opinion, if I'm, if I'm honest, but, I, I mean, it's just going to be one of those calls that everybody's going to revisit every now and then. Yeah, very true. Actually, I would love to have Christina Uncle on my show to talk about that because I really, really would love to hear uh, you know her expertise on the situation. Of course, she is the rules analyst for both MLS 360 uh, and as well as CBS Sports. Um, when they do UEFA Champions League and any other contests involving the CONCACAF Nations League and, of course, recently the U.S. Open Cup Finals. So I would love to have her on to talk about that type of situation. That's really going to be fun to talk about. But uh, once again, uh, big moment in second-half stoppage time. Crepo makes that big final save. Ford blows his whistle, and LAFC moves on to the next round. I mean... After everything that happened in the regular season and, and, and moments for LAFC with their Open Cup run falling short, um, losing to, uh, I believe it was Tigres in the Campeones Cup, do you feel LAFC is back on track now to maybe make another run to the MLS Cup championship? Well, there's absolutely no doubt that it, this season has been an absolute whirlwind for the club that after falling short for a few titles this past season, including the CCL and the uh, Campeones Cup. So I believe that they are definitely more motivated to make a, a to repeat the to make a, to make the run again, essentially, because you, you can see it. 
in this club and in this team, especially in the first game against Vancouver, that was old school LAFC with their attacking style, the possession. It, you could just feel the motivation from it. Now, again, I, I like to believe that they can return to MLS Cup, but given how the uh, current schedule is laid out, and chances are they will not play again until after Thanksgiving, I can only hope they can keep that motivation up until the next couple of rounds. But, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, o- overall, I, I would love to see LESB, uh repeat if they can. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, who do you think they what they should do between these breaks? I mean, obviously uh, nothing should be done during their national break, but – uh, do you think that they would contact a USL championship club to maybe have a friendly schedule, whether it be, you know, closed doors probably, to uh, keep their uh, keep them on their toes before they get ready for the next round? I don't necessarily see them doing any type of friendly or, you know, off-season matches, but I, I do see them, you know, kind of scrimmaging with each other in training, Hopefully working on penalties, just in case, of course. Um, but just kind of uh, about working with each other and bouncing off, using each other's energy. Mm-hmm. I agree with you there. We'll see what happens moving down. Um, if I can ask you this, obviously, you know, look, I think Steve Terongolo has done an amazing job with LAFC so far. Obviously, after taking it over from Bob Bradley, you can really tell uh, more so the competitiveness from his voice, even though he's still kind of monotone. Just, just the competitive fire that's in him has been absolutely fantastic. And, and what do you make of the brand-new Apple TV MLS Season Pass commercial that he's a part of at this point in time? <laughs> the, the commercial itself is hilarious. I, I will admit that, especially given the current rivalry that this league has. So to match Sharundalo with one of LEFC's biggest rivals, it, it only makes sense. And to see him get the credit he deserves is also fantastic. Because I, I know there's been certain points on your show where we've kind of discussed this with, you know, our kind of hesitation, if you will, from back when he was first, when the club first hired him, up until this point. He is definitely proven everybody wrong that he is this top-tier coach and he is able to work with the roster that is arguably changing um, every transfer window. So to watch him have this strength up until this point is it's gratifying and hopefully guaranteeing LAFC a more secure future. Absolutely. Araceli, thank you very much for your time. Always appreciate it. And I hope to talk to you in the next round after the international break. Thank you once again. Thank you for having me on. Araceli Villanueva uh, from part of LAFC to recap LAFC's victories over the Vancouver Whitecaps. And now another recorded interview with the one only down in Atlanta, Jason Longshore of 92.9 FM, the game, as Atlanta United equaled the series after a 2-0 loss to the crew. They go back home to beat them four goals to two and set up a pivotal third game this upcoming weekend. Here he is right now. 
The American Soccer Show is back again, ladies and gentlemen, as now we turn our attention to the matchup between Atlanta United and the Columbus Crew. Joining me from 92.9 FM, the game in Atlanta, Georgia, the Atlanta United radio analyst, the one and only Jason Longshore. And don't forget, he's also part of Soccer Down Here. Jay, welcome back, and how are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. Doing much better after Tuesday night and uh, looking ahead to Game 3 in Columbus this weekend. Absolutely. Let's quickly go back to Game 1, obviously. That was a 2-0 defeat at the hands of the uh, of the crew. And, you know, Ch- Chucho Hernandez, a uh, very dangerous player for Columbus. And do you think it was Nancy's uh, tactics that kind of confused Atlanta a little bit on the road? Or has Lower.com field been such a fortress for visitors? It's it's kind of a little bit of everything, and I think this series has been that. I think it's been a great series so far with just how evenly matched these teams are. They they both have a similar idea of how they want to play. Now, they go about it a little differently, but they're, they're both based on wanting the ball, and they're very true to who they are, and they don't really deviate from it. Atlanta had to deviate in game one because of the red card suspension for Tiago Almada from decision day. So without Almada, I think they wanted to try something a little different. And look, this playoff format lends itself to that. If you're the, the lower seed and you win your home game, you get two shots at the higher seed in their house. And game one, I think it was the right call from Gonzalo Pineda. You go in with a little bit of a hybrid 5-4-1 slash 3-4-3, and I think it would build up in a 5-4-1 and defend in a 5-4-1, but then when you got into the middle third and attacked, it could turn into a 3-4-3, and we got glimpses of that in the, the first half of the first half, where I thought Atlanta did a really good job. They were able to build up their, their play out of the back really well. Columbus couldn't find the angles to press them. Now, where Atlanta struggled is where you miss a guy like Tiago Almada getting into the attacking third in dangerous situations, and that was missing. And after about 25 minutes or so, Columbus started to grab control of that game. But if Atlanta gets to halftime and doesn't have a turnover late in the first half that then Cucho punishes you on the other end, Maybe that second half looks a little different. I feel like the stat sheet and the score line made game one look more tilted to Columbus than it was, and I kind of feel the same way about game two, where Atlanta got the goal right before the end of the half after they had conceded, and it was 1-1, and Hernandez had scored again, and he's just amazing in the attacking third and anywhere around the 18-yard box. But then it was Atlanta who found the goal before the end of the half, they grabbed the control and the momentum, and Columbus didn't have an answer in the second half. I think these teams are very evenly matched is what it comes down to to me. And it's been weird. Uh, This series has been the opposite of what really recent history has been for these teams about being at home and being on the road. Atlanta has a really good record in Columbus. Columbus has a great record at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, one of the only teams to have a great record at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. But it's been the home team so far. And I feel like we get into game three now, and with everything that we've seen through 180 minutes so far, this is as evenly matched as any playoff series in the league. Absolutely. And as you were saying, of course, here in this second game, uh, Atlanta on the front foot looking really good and really strong. You know, Gio, Gio Kumakis, 
absolutely got Newcomer of the Year award, and uh, that was a great goal he scored in that 38th minute with that running power header, how he just was in great position to accept the cross and just bury that ball. There's a couple things that Yorgos did in this game that I think, not that I was surprised, but maybe fly under the radar a little bit because you look at his numbers and you look at his year, He's incredible in the air. He's incredible in front of goal. He, he has just been that number nine that this team has lacked since Joseph Martinez did his knee in Nashville at the beginning of 2020. But the other things that jumped out to me, he had two assists in this game, and I think we had seen glimpses during his time in the Netherlands and in Scotland of his ability to bring others into the game. He reads the game really well. I think he feels space really well. A lot of times he'll make runs to open up space for somebody else. In this case, he felt Shondi Silva making the overlapping run. He had the assist for Edwin Mosquera, which was goal number three. That was an outstanding first touch from Yakamakis on the 1-2 with Mosquera. But the most important thing he did in this game, and you see turning points when you get to the playoffs, and you see those moments where the game could flip the other way. Shonde Silva's miss from the top of the six was one of those moments. 2-1 Atlanta at that point, and you could feel for a split second the air come out of the building after that miss. Silva obviously put his head down, hand, you know, face in his hand. Yorgos immediately went to Shonde, picked his head up, picked him up, no, we've got you. We've got this. And it didn't just leave it at that. Then he turned to the fans and, and got them behind Shande to the point that there was a chance for Shande Silva after that miss. And that was such a moment of leadership that it was where the game could have went Columbus's way because, oh, yeah, they're off the hook now. They, they, they have a chance to go, and Shande might be in his own head the rest of the way. Yorgo Chakamakis did not allow that to happen. And the game flipped back Atlanta's way in about a 60-second span. It was amazing to see. And it's one of those things that can really spur a team on. Absolutely. And uh, as you've already said, Silva was able to make it 2-1 in first half stoppage time after Chucho Hernandez gets his uh, big goal there to make it 1-1. And, uh, it, I mean, it looked like Atlanta really on the front foot, just kept on attacking and attacking and took advantage of whatever Columbus tried to throw at them. But as you said, Almada had to serve the uh, red card suspension to go into the first game against Columbus. And how about that running chip shot in the 88th minute by him to bury that ball beautifully? Yeah, it's just a, a great moment. And it's all set up by Caleb Wiley, the teenager who – has been so good for Atlanta United in this series. If you go back to game one, the one mistake that he's made in the series, he had a turnover late in the first half that Columbus then broke and, and got the opening goal. And it's a moment that, you know, you want your young players to be confident enough to make things happen every time they have the ball at their feet. Caleb may be a little too confident in that moment. He, he tried to force it, turned it over. It felt like in game two he was determined to help Atlanta get back to Columbus, and he wanted to make amends in the way that he played. I think he shut down Julian Gressel in the series, and that was a moment where the, the, the setup, the game model that Gonzalo Pineda has, Caleb Wiley had tucked inside, and Atlanta was able to pick him out in the center circle. This is your, your teenage left back in the center. 
inner circle, and Wiley puts it on a platter for Almada, who then shows his speed, breaks through, and just that chip is just immaculate from Tiago Almada. I thought Columbus did a pretty good job of keeping him quiet on the night, and it's a credit to Aiden Morris, it's a credit to Darlington Nagby, and just the way that Columbus defends. But Almada, even in those moments, and we're seeing the same with Cucho Hernandez on the other side, they can be quiet for long stretches, but when they get that pocket of space, they can punish you. Yep, they really can. And that's the one thing I think that uh, Atlanta's going to have to be weary of when you head back up to lower.com field in Columbus, Ohio. But how nice is it to have Tiago Amada back in that starting 11? Because I think you're – like you said, I, I think he's definitely a cog that really needs to be a part of this Atlanta uh, yeah. starting 11 attack. Yeah, he gives you confidence. I mean, when you have somebody like Tiago, you can have a game like this past one where Tiago wasn't instrumental in the first three goals, but just the fact that he's on the field is going to draw attention and create space for others. And Tiago Almada was not on the field in March when Atlanta lost at Lower.com Field. He was not on the field in game one in the postseason. He will be on Sunday night. And I think that changes things from the Columbus perspective. Yeah, they're at home. They're going to be expected to carry the play. We know how Wilfred Nancy wants to play. He's going to do different things tactically to get there. But we know what he wants to do ultimately. He wants to dominate possession. He wants to play the game in the attacking half. But when you have a player like Thiago Almada on the opposite side, that's in the back of your mind. And you've got to be careful at times. Just like Cucho Hernandez in a different position does that for Columbus. Atlanta at home had to be careful about where Cucho was at all times, make sure he was accounted for. The one moment where the ball turns over and he can get an opportunity to get a 1v1, he gets his goal. It's the same thing in game one. So that will be the difference maker in this game in game three for me in terms of Columbus's approach. They're going to have to have that, that sixth sense of where – Almada is on the field because when the ball turns over and Atlanta regains possession in their own half, they can build up the play out of the back really well and they can be methodical when they need to and they have good players on the ball and passing situations there. But if you can pop one out into the corner and find Tiago Almada in space like Caleb Wiley did in game two, Almada can ruin your day. And that's something that I think will affect Columbus's tactics in game three versus what they did in game one. Do you feel Atlanta United is fully back to where they are since they came into the league many years ago under Tata Martino? I do. I mean, honestly, I think it's it's different in some ways just because of Gonzalo Pineda is a different manager. And I think, honestly, he's a, a more risk-taking manager than Tata Martino. And the trade-off is you're probably going to concede some more goals with that. And we've seen this team at times have some defensive mistakes that have cost you, but they've also been very open. The goal, the first goal for Columbus, I mean, it's a, it's a turnover in possession in your own half where that's how Atlanta plays. They're going to they're gonna do that. They're going to build up the play. They're going to get forward with numbers. And when it turns over, they're exposed. And you've got to have 1v1 defending. So that part's a little more different. I think Tata during 17 and 18 became more conservative over that time with Atlanta United. And you watch how they played at the beginning of 17, and you watch how they played in the playoffs in 18, it's a very different team, and it's a very different approach. 
that's part of it. But then I think another really important difference is the academy is really coming good now. And you would expect it to be different with the you know, first couple of years of the team and then now you're you're deeper into it. You've got a generation of guys. Caleb Wiley was the I think a ten year old, eleven year old when he came into the academy. Now he's your everyday regular starter at left back and one of your most important players. The end of the game in game two, you had three academy players on the left half of the field that have all played together extensively, that all know each other extensively, and they're all comfortable and gain confidence from one another in Wiley, in Jay Fortune, who might have to start in game three. Mateus Osetsu came off with a calf injury, and we haven't heard an update yet. If Fortune has to start, he started game one. Not too concerned about that, and that's another academy homegrown. Tyler Wolf came off the bench in game two. That's an academy homegrown. You've got that element that has come through with players who have developed at the club. So, you know, clubs evolve. I think the identity of being bold and attacking and getting numbers forward and and being aggressive and being in your face, like, that's been consistent. The way they get there, a little bit different with Gonzalo Pineda. And honestly, now, I think they represent more of Atlanta and Atlanta United with these homegrowns coming through who – that's the lifeblood of the club. That's that's your DNA. That's your you know that that's everything about a club is those kids who were in the stands, a ball boy. They, were, they watch these big moments, and then they get to represent the club and and carry it forward. That's the element that I think has taken this to another level with those guys, and it just to me that's the most exciting thing about where Atlanta United has evolved over time. And that's the future right there, folks. Once again, MLS Academies, churning, building, producing, talented young players, not just for Atlanta United, but, of course, for international soccer. And hopefully uh, these kids will get the U.S. men's national team call-up, like, of course, Miles Robinson of Atlanta United. Jay, thank you very much. Good luck with Game 3. I know you'll be traveling to call that one for 92.9 FM, the game. And uh, good luck on the road trip back to Columbus, and hopefully it's going to be advancing to the next round. It's going to be a really fun match. I think if you're a neutral out there and you're not attached to Atlanta or Columbus, this could be the best playoff game of the year, in my opinion. Uh, I think the matchup between these two is just so good. And if you want to listen to our Atlanta United radio coverage and it is definitely slanted towards Atlanta United. You've grown up listening to uh, sports on the radio in the South. You know the feel that we get. It's going to be on Star 94 in Atlanta this weekend, uh, conflict with the Falcons who are on, on 92.9 the game. So 6.30 pregame, 7.09 is the kickoff. You can listen to it on the Odyssey app as well. But Star 94 on the radio, and you can dial that up on the Odyssey app to listen to it. All right, Jay, thank you. Once again, that was Jason Longshore for 92.9 FM, the game on Atlanta United's win over the Columbus Crew. Joining me now, Sporting Kansas City sweeps St. Louis City SC. And the one to talk about, as always, from the Kansas City Journal, uh, excuse me, the Kansas City Soccer Journal, it is my good friend Mike Kuhn. Cuny, what can you say? The boys come back home to Children's Mercy Park and they do the job sweeping St. Louis City out of the playoffs. I mean, it was a – from start to finish, that was a 
fantastic 180 minutes of soccer, some of the best sportings played this year overall. I mean, the the home game was – it felt like a return to – basically peak sporting KC from like 2012 to 2014, 2015 um, inside the stadium. It just felt um, electric, a feeling I haven't really felt in at sporting games for a couple of years now, it felt like. Oh, I agree with you. I think it was definitely that, uh, that era with sporting Kansas city. I, I think can we say Vermees has maybe finally learned how to change things up? I'm not saying he's a hothead or a hardhead, but I, I think he finally realized that he had to make some changes to make this series go his way. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think we talked about it last week when I, when I was on that Vermees changed up his strategy to in St. Louis. He, he forced St. Louis to have the ball and it, it worked to their advantage and he he did it, and he he didn't do it to the same extent here, but he was able to time when he forced St. Louis to have the ball, basically, and it, it worked to their advantage again. I, I think I, I'm not ready to say that he's learned and he's going to adjust, but he, he I mean, I hate to say this because um, St. Louis City is well coached, but. He outcoached them in this series. He 100% outcoached them and was the better coach over the 180 minutes with how he had his team lined up and ready to play. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you right there. Absolutely he did. And all you can really say once again, CUNY, is Sporting Kansas City, I thought they were going to be the better side regardless of where they finished at number eighth in the West winning the wild card game over the earthquakes. Many people, I, I don't know if many people picked them to beat St. Louis, but I know I did because I didn't think St. Louis was going to do anything in the playoffs because this is the first time ever as a team to be in a playoff situation. And, and look, I give Bradley Carnell tons of credit for how he got his team to play this year in their inaugural season. But I, I always felt that, Vermees had the upper hand if this was going to be a playoff situation. I, I, I think that's fair. I mean, Ver, Vermees has the experience in the playoffs. Vermees has the more experienced MLS side in the tournament. I mean, you, you can talk about Klaus and Berkey and Lo, uh, and all, all the experience um, internationally for uh, – for St. Louis City, but Kansas City has a very experienced MLS roster. They know what's expected of them in in the playoffs and in that situation. And when you have a coach like Vermes who's been around as much as he has, you you know what you, you have an idea of what you're getting into in that situation. And Kansas City exploited the mistakes that uh, that that St. Louis gave them in the uh, in the series. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and recap this match. Uh, in Denbe, in first half stoppage time, how about that low bender that he converted to make it uh, 1-0 for Sporting before you get to the halftime whistle? I mean, that that goal was huge in terms of the the balance of the game. I the Getting that goal before halftime was uh, basically, in my opinion, is what clinched the, the series for Sporting. It it forced St. Louis to chase the game more. It forced 
St. Louis to want the ball more in, in the second half to be able to try to create those chances. And it just played to, to Kansas City's advantages. And, I mean, as for the goal itself, I mean, I mentioned earlier about the feel of the stadium. The The roar for his goal was, I think, the loudest I've heard since Collins scored the winner or the uh, equalizer in MLS Cup uh, 2013 because it was – you go back and watch the replay of it, and it's just it's deafening in there to uh, to to think about at the time. It was absolutely a return to form for the entire stadium, which was fantastic. Yep, it really, really was. And of course, we all know a great fortress. Children's Mercy Park is over in Kansas City. It's just uh, one of the best places to go and uh, be a part of a match, whether it be Kansas City or uh, the U.S. men's or women's national team. Second half, and Tim Milia, I, I mean, I, I'm still amazed with Tim Milia, CUNY. I, I just don't understand. How old is he, and how is he still in this league, still playing the way he is in goal? Seriously. He, he He's 37 now, and it, yeah, I trust me. I'm in the same boat as you, Daniel. I, I, I've for a long time uh, preached the whole Father Time's undefeated. But Tim Neal is sure giving him a run for his money when Tim, when he's on form because he is he he comes in and he, it he he settles things in the back and it just is the the team is completely different with him back there. Um, compared to uh, McIntosh and even Pulse Camp when when they were getting time, it it's just he he's a he he's a great goalie and one of those that I think was hurt the most by the uh, by World Cup qualifying for Russia with the fact that they struggled because that was when he was at his peak and arguably should have gotten some time with the national team and never did. But no, Melia is is fantastic and he's I mean he, he's like a fine wine he's gotten better with age sure at this point he's probably lost a step but he's still a at least a top half goalkeeper in the league at this point exactly and I really would have loved to talk to you about the playoff win in the wild card against San Jose because without a doubt anytime it goes to a penalty kick shootout it's always advantage him always advantage Melia no matter what oh absolutely he's he's undefeated in uh shootouts he's six and zero for Kansas City and then yet or he's seven and zero overall he's five and zero with Kansas City he's three and zero against San Jose so I mean he he's he yeah if the if a game goes down to penalty kicks it it, I, I I think I mentioned it previously. It's not 50-50. It's at least 60-40 in Kansas City's favor with Mealy and goal. Just, just from this point, from the mental mind games of the fact of how good he can be on penalty kicks, it's going to be in the shooters' heads. Um, it, it was the same with uh, Tommy Thompson in – or not Tommy Thompson, uh, Jackson Ewell in the San Jose playoff series. He, Mealy had stopped him in the uh, – 2020 playoffs so you knew that was in his head come this year's playoffs and he overthought it it melia is a is a trump card when it comes to a shootout simply because he has so much of a it's a known quantity of how good he is back there on penalty kicks that you have to know i have to hit this perfectly 
or else he's going to have a good shot at saving it, and then you overhit it and you hit it over the bar. Exactly right. And, of course, once again, Daniel Shaloy, uh, 73rd minute, trailing that play uh, when Sporting was attacking. And, of course, he's at the right place at the right time on the pass and converts it to make it 2-0. I mean, that was a textbook counterattack. Um, I mean, it, it's funny. You watch the uh, broadcast on Apple and you hear you hear. Taylor Twelman saying that he thinks that Burmese should make some subs. They haven't looked great over the last 15, 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, Kansas City is countering the other way through Russell. Russell, the key to the shallowy, and it's in the back of the net, basically. So it's a, it was a one, it's the type of counter that you show teams on this is how to play counterattacking soccer. Because Sporting was give, letting St. Louis have the ball. They were, St. Louis was controlling possession, and then Kansas City went the other way and made it 2-0. Exactly. Unbelievable. Um, I know in the 86th minute, Pompeii with a Galazzo, I mean, my God, that was a hell of a rip, and that made it 2-1 for sporting. But did you feel any panic during this game after that Galazzo was nailed that, uh uh-oh, here comes St. Louis, and he might throw an exclamation point into this match? The the 12 minutes of stoppage time started to give me a little bit of of worry on it. But at the same time, St. Louis, while they controlled the stoppage time, they never really were able to create much in the way of, uh, of real clear chances. E- even the goal was more of a schross than an actual goal. So it, it was, I mean, it was worrisome with how much stoppage time there was, but I, I I never felt like St. Louis was really threatening to find that equalizer. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you there. 12 minutes of stoppage time, and that would put fear into anybody, to be honest with you, (laughs) no matter who's got the lead. I'll tell you, it's just amazing to see what's going to happen there. And of course uh, it ended Sporting Kansas City advances to the next round. I mean, this has just been incredible. Uh, You know, I I mean, look, I know there's going to be better competition after the international break for Sporting Kansas City, whoever they face. I haven't really looked at the bracket uh, at this point in time. But who do you fear now, now that it's going back to a one and done? Uh, Is it LAFC? Is it... Maybe I know Houston has a game left against Real Salt Lake. Do you fear any of those two teams? Which team do you fear the most for Sporting Kansas City to go on the road to challenge to try and advance to the next round? Honestly, all four teams that uh, Sporting can play uh, uh, Houston or Salt Lake. That's who they play in the next round. They play the winner of that series. And uh, from, I mean, the the team I fear the least is probably Dallas, and even they have a fantastic home record. And but at the same time, Kansas City's road record isn't great. So I mean, I, Houston's really good at home. Salt Lake, we beat them three to two earlier this season at home, so they're not going to roll over and think it's going to be an easy game if we have to go there in the next round. L.A. FC is a really strong home crowd. And I mean, everybody knows how good Seattle is. So, I mean, 
with the fact that sporting has to go on the road and with the fact that to win MLS Cup, sporting has to basically get three wins, three straight wins on the road, which they only had three league road wins all this season, it's going to be a tough ask, and none of them are going to be easy games. But at the same time, this is the point where you talk about the experienced roster, the roster that, while aged, knows what they're doing, knows what's expected of them, knows how to go out and get the job done. Kansas City has that roster that is – veteran enough and um, composed enough that if it comes down to it, they could go on the road and try to grind out a result. Whether they do that, I don't know. But right now, of the two teams Kansas City could play next, it's a toss-up because you have Houston, who I said is really good at home, and you have Salt Lake, who's a little less good, but Kansas City just went there a few weeks ago and beat them three to two to uh, basically at the time keep their playoff hopes alive. So Saint or Salt Lake isn't going to it isn't going. You know that Salt Lake is going to look at that result if the game comes up and be like, we can't let that happen again. Basically, so I, I'm not. I don't want to say I'm not looking forward to either matchup because both will be fun, but neither one's going to be easy. Both of them are going to require Kansas City to be at the top of their game. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, they're going to have to be on top of their game, and they're definitely going to have to make probably some adjustments when they uh, are going to be on the road, either against Houston or Real Salt Lake, obviously. So it's going to be really tough. But I will say this: well, they're going to they're, depending they're gonna on what happens without Logan. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to do it without Logan and Dembe as well. So he, it's it's going to be a a tough tough overall because Dembe has been been enjoying the form of his career uh over the last month basically and then he has the two playoff goals yeah. so it, it's it's going to be tough for for sporting yeah no it really will be but i will say this um if you're going to try and play poker with peter vermees He's going to find a way to get the wild card, and he's going to beat you. So I'm not going to put anything past him at all. If you want to say you're playing with house money, damn right you are if you got Peter Vermees as your uh, head coach and sporting director. That's for sure. But CUNY, as always, hope to talk to you after international break. Thanks for joining me tonight, and I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Daniel. All right. Mike Kuhn, Kansas City Soccer Journal joining us to talk about Sporting Kansas City's victory in the opening round against St. Louis City SC. And my final guest tonight couldn't come on live once again. So it is the broadcaster and writer for Dallas Soccer, Stephen, Steve Davis, on the recording. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. And welcome back to the American Soccer Show as we continue on here to review round one, the second game in the MLS Cup playoffs. And joining me right now, this gentleman is the well-known writer, broadcaster. He covers FC Dallas, and this is the one and only, the infamous Steve Davis. Steve, thank you very much for your time, and welcome to the show. Ah, man, what kind of an introduction, man. That was awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah, happy to be here. And that's why you're royalty and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway... um, 
you know, FC Dallas had to win this game at home, and boy, oh boy, what a roller coaster of a match that was between uh, FC Dallas and the Sounders. I never thought I'd ever see so many multiple VAR checks in one playoff match in my entire life. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, I think Dallas felt just just a little hard done by a penalty kick decision up in Seattle. Uh, you know, in game one, in my opinion, it was a, it was a penalty kick. It was, it was very clever from uh, Christian Roldan, but it was a penalty kick. So, so you know, a couple of the uh, VAR choices uh, going Dallas's way that uh, I think that made you know, everybody at the stadium that night feel, feel a little better. I, I, I tend to think those things balance out, but you're right. It, you know, as a broadcaster on the, on the match, it certainly gives you plenty, plenty to uh, talk about. And, uh, you know, in the end, I think the, the, the choices were right. So, uh, you know, all was well there. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and review these goals here. I mean, the match, basically. I mean, Paul Ariola, um, great goal from him on a snap header in the sixth minute to give Dallas the 1-0 lead to start it off. Yeah, I, I, I sort of think, look, it, it, it is a good header uh, into the far post from, from Paul. But, uh, man, for me, uh, the uh, the first half, or at least the first 20 minutes, it was all about Bernie Camungo getting back into the lineup, getting healthy enough to uh, off a recent injury to get back into the lineup and, you know, uh, working the right side and really giving Nuhu some problems over there on, on Seattle's defensive left side and was able to turn that ball back in and, uh, you know, get to get a good cross in. Paul Oriola coming in from the left side. It's funny with Paul. Most of the plays right wing. It's because they've had Alan Velasco out on the left wing for for so long this year. Uh, But Paul really likes playing more on the left side. He wants to be a guy that comes in on his right foot. And uh, so most of his goals this year have come when he is playing on the left side. He just feels more comfortable. And that's where he came from. And I, I don't think it was particularly good marking uh, or particularly good defense from Seattle and Brian Schmetzer said so afterwards, you know, Paul getting loose for, for a free header and no uh, no contesting on the cross. At, uh, so not the best from Seattle, but uh, good on good on Dallas' part. No, absolutely. And then later on in the match in the, uh, in the 13th minute, I mean, it's a long, long look. I mean, Bernard gets fouled in the area, and uh, the referee does not even call for the penalty. The play keeps on going, and then VAR calls in, and, yeah, they reverse that decision for a penalty. Yeah, so Rosendo Mendoza was the official, and uh, I believe that was his first MLS playoff game, and uh, I I think, uh, you know, he he doesn't want to make a big call like that so early in the match, and I think that had something to do with it, but like I just said, Bernie Camungo coming in, and it was just really giving Nuhu fits over there, and I can't remember at at this point, I think Nuhu already had a yellow card, I I can't remember what the sequence was there, but he would get a yellow card pretty soon if it wasn't all ready uh and you know uh, Kamungo was about to get by him and it looked in real time I, I thought it looked pretty clear I think you and maybe depending on your angle you could assess that maybe Bernie Kamungo sort of stabbed the ground because as he put his foot down that's exactly when Nuhu got into him but you know, look I, you know, it seems like to me that complaining about VAR is a sport all into itself but you know that's what it's there for and I think we forget how many times VAR comes in and you know gets something right and uh, yeah the uh, VAR I think in, in, back in Atlanta was Kevin Stott uh, you know he gets in there and, and tells uh, you know tells Mendoza hey, you know, we, we need to take a look at this one. And, and Mendoza takes a look and rightly points to the spot because knew who got him. 
Yep, he really did. And then it's Dallas, obviously. Uh, Jesus Ferreira converts it to make it 2-0 in the 18th minute. You get to halftime. And what, what's, what are you thinking at halftime right now in your, in your mind? You know, Dallas is looking good. You're up 2-0. Obviously, that's the most dangerous scoreline in soccer. But did you feel confident that they were going to ride out the entire match on the, on the positive side of the ledger? Well, so I'll take you back just a little bit. So what happens is after 20 minutes, Dallas has this 2-0 lead, and then it's, it's, it's a combination of maybe Dallas taking the foot off the gas just a little bit, maybe Seattle, you know, a good veteran playoff team. I mean, that, that's a good team, make no mistake. And they they got a lot of players who are perfectly capable of, you know, of, of rising to the moment, and that's what they did. So after the first 20 minutes, but about the next 25, Seattle had control of the match. Now, they weren't offering a whole, whole lot of threat, you know, in terms of, you know, making Martin Paz, FC Dallas, the goalkeeper, do a whole lot, but they had control of the match. They, they had control of midfield. They really pushed Dallas back. Dallas doing, again, a pretty good job in its low block defending, but after the first 20 minutes, you, you would look at it and say, man, Seattle's got control of this match. So it wasn't like Dallas went into halftime thinking everything is uh, everything is roses here. I think they went into halftime understanding that they were going to have to do a little bit more to sort of restabilize the game from their side. Yeah, I agree with you there. And obviously Seattle does get into the uh, match at the start of the second half, 48th minute after the restart. Jordan Morris scores and originally called uh, no goal due an offside, but VAR calls up and says, nope, take a look, and uh, gets reversed, and it's 2-1. Yeah, I think it was maybe they were looking at a foul, at a potential foul. Uh, I think more than the more than the offside. I'm not really sure if I got a clear indication of what exactly the check was, but I think it was a legitimate goal. I think it was very clever on Jordan Morris's part. Uh, you know, as as he's racing in on goal, uh, you know, Jordan Morris, he he, you know, he wants to use that right foot, and he had the, the he was sort of running off to his left a little bit. And Martin Paz has been very very good for Dallas this year. I I really think he's top five goalkeeper in Major League Soccer now, but he was totally not ready for that shot because, you know, as Morris is racing in with, uh, you know, pressure coming from behind him, he just sort of takes his right foot and a, little, a nice little toe poke. And, you know, so there's no wind up there. And Martin Paz just, just watches the ball go by him. And I'm not saying it's, uh, you know, that's on the goalkeeper. I'm saying it's a really clever moment there from, from Jordan Morris, who was really good in the game, by the way, when uh, Dallas was Dallas was pressing with, with four players. Uh, you know, usually they, out of a 4-3-3, they press up high with three. They, they change their shape. They start pressing with four, which meant Seattle was having a little bit of an issue. This, again, that first 20 minutes, well, what they start doing is just going direct. And they're like, okay, if Dallas is going to press with four, that means we got them 3v2 in midfield, and if we can throw a ball up to Jordan Morris, who is uh, not the biggest guy, but he's physical, and it was working for them. So uh, Morris was really good the other day. And that was just uh, that was just another moment for him. That uh, as he as he gets in on goal, gets behind the back line. The back line got caught up a little high there, and he got it behind him and uh, he beat Martin Paz with a clever little toe poke. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, obviously, Jordan Morris thought he had a second goal, but he was called offside on that one. That got wiped out. And later on, I think I think you would agree that Jesus Ferrer did get lucky because on the replay, it did look like he did grab a, a bit of jersey. Uh, from behind, and even though uh, VAR did say to the referee, you know, we're, we're checking it, and no, play on, do you feel there was a luckiness right there that a second penalty was not awarded in this match and in favor of Seattle? 
No, like I said a while ago, I, I feel like a couple of the choices sort of went Dallas's way. Uh, you know, Dallas is the underdog in the series, and you, you, you know you got to have that. I mean, you got to have a little bit of a little bit of luck there. And so that was. Uh, so you're talking about Raul Ruiz Diaz. It was on a counter break, and uh, Raul Ruiz Diaz was on the was on the run of the middle channel, or maybe the left left center channel. Jesus Ferreira uh, was doing a good job of trying to chase him down from behind. You know, this is Dallas's striker, and he's. You know, he's doing a good job of just tracking back in that, on that on that counter and trying to trying to catch Rui Diaz as a, as the cross comes in. I forget who it was on the right side that hit the cross, but as the cross comes in, Martin Paz, you know, comes off his line and, and catches it pretty easily. So, so then VAR, I think they're looking at two things. You know, Jesus absolutely clearly grabs him, which is not smart on Jesus's part. But he, again, he's a striker, not a defender. But he grabs him, so they're looking at two things. Did, it, did, did the foul occur maybe outside the penalty area and then continue into the penalty area? So they're looking at that. But I think in the end what they what they assessed, Daniel, was that, that Raul Ruiz Diaz was not going to get to that ball. And I think Raul Ruiz Diaz knew as well, and he's a clever player, and as soon as he understood that Martin Paz was going to go out, catch the ball in his belly, and he didn't even catch it up high. It was an easy catch. And as soon as he figured out he wasn't going to get to it, and he knew he had that, you know, he knew he had been grabbed from behind, he sort of threw himself a little theatrically. And I think between that, you know, being a little theatrical about it, and the fact that I don't think he was going to get to that ball, I think the, the VAR assesses no, you know, we're, uh, you know, Mendoza assesses nope, that's, uh, that's, we're not going to point to the spot on that one. Okay, no, I think, and I agree with you there. I mean, if it, if it started outside the area, it makes no sense to bring it in. If it wasn't that much of a tug, or he wasn't going to get to the ball. No, that's a great call by the officials, absolutely. And, of course, Damasi, what a big save uh, at the front post on that shot from the Sounders. I mean, I think he's been a solid goalkeeper for FC Dallas for a while now. Um, I mean, that was just tremendous from him. Yeah, so, so uh, you, are you asking about Damasi or about the goalkeeper, Martin Potts? Uh, Damasi, uh, Tomasi. So yeah, on, on a little scramble, uh, yeah, that was, and that's one thing. Uh, Ima Tomasi, the right back, that's one thing he's he's pretty good at. You know, he's a converted right winger, and uh, he sometimes he can dwell on the ball a little bit. You know, he's got pluses and minuses to his game. He can't dwell on the ball, but he's very hard to knock off the ball. And then the other thing, he's he's good at one-on-one defending, and he's also just good at scramble defending. You know, that's sort of almost like an art in itself. You know, there's some players that, that maybe they're not conventional in the way they defend, but they always seem to, you know, pop up and, and, and react quickly in the right places, and that's one of the things that Ema does well. And, and that was a big moment. Brian Schmetzer said in his post-game comment, he's like, I, I don't know how we didn't score there. He said, you know, that ball is just sort of laying there. And we're not first to react to it. Ema Tomasi was, and that was a that was a big moment. That, that's what these playoffs are, though, man. You, you know, you you got to make the moment. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was, it was 20, I think, um, Dallas went up to Seattle, lost in a, in a single elimination. It was 1-0, uh, I think, on a Shane O'Neill goal, if I memory serves. And I remember afterwards, Brian Schmetzer said, and I thought he assessed it just perfectly, he said, you know what, this is a very easy game. We made one more play than they did. And I think that's a lot of the playoffs, you know, you, you know, the, you got to make the moment. You got to make the plays that matter in the moments that matter. If you go back to the first game with Dallas and Seattle, game one, uh, Jesus Pereira twice gets set up. Uh, you know when when Dallas the press works to poke a ball away uh, a couple of times from Jao Paulo, or at least once from Jao Paulo, uh, sets up Jesus Pereira one on one. He misses both of them. You know, and, and Dallas loses the game. So 
it's just, it's just little moments, and that's that's what makes the playoffs. You got to make the moment. Exactly, and finally, of course, Obreon with a low blast makes it three-one officially. Two minutes later, it's three-one Dallas. You take game, they take game two, and now you're going back uh, over to Lumen Field in Seattle, Washington. What does Dallas need to do to make the upset happen? Because we all know how much Lumen Field is a fortress to the Seattle Sounders. Well, especially when it comes to FC Dallas. So you're a soccer guy. You know the name, Breck Shea, yeah? Okay, so Breck Shea was the last player to score a winning goal at, for FC Dallas at Lumen Field. Now it's back in 2011. They play at Lumen Field every year, and then and they've met, uh, this is the sixth time they've met the playoffs, so they're playing multiple times at Lumen Field. So think about that. They have not won a game. There have been some draws in there, but they have not won a game in that building since 2011 when Breck Shea was scoring for, for FC Dallas. So, man, that's a long time. And, you know, I even asked Paxton Pomichol today um, at a training. I said, you know, in your heart of hearts, you know, how do you guys go up there? I know, you, you know you're know, you pro athletes. You think you can win, you know. But in your heart of hearts, how do you go to a place where you, this team just never wins and think you can do it? And, you know, he said, well, honestly, I, I don't even know. We, uh, he's been around since 16. He's like, I guess you're right. I have never won up there. He's like, you just – you don't think about it. You just look at the game and think you, you believe in your team and believe what you can do. And man, uh, it, it's tough up there. And you ask me what they can do. They just have to number one, make the moments. Uh, when the chances come, it, sometimes it's, it's no more complicated than this. You got to finish them. That's it. You're not going to get against that Seattle defense. You're going to get two, maybe maybe three good chances. You better you better put them away. You got to match Seattle's intensity because I can tell you, up there, game three. They didn't come out with the right kind of intensity, physical matchups, uh, you know, in the game in game two. They're going to bring it this time, so Dallas has to be able to match that. And then uh, past that, they probably have to get a little bit lucky. You know, Seattle got a bang one off the post that Dallas, you know, at the other end puts in or something like that. It can happen, but, you know, the odds are stacked a little bit against them. Well, hopefully they'll find a way to uh, make that happen and maybe make that upset, and we'll see what happens uh, this upcoming weekend. But, Steve, thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate it, and uh, let's see if that FC Dallas can make that happen with the upset. No problem, man. Enjoy talking to you.